I thank God that I was raised in the CD. It just felt like there was always somewhere to go. It felt limitless. I mean, it was just brown people everywhere. I stopped at the Black and Tan many times that night. Oh, it was the best barbecue in the world. But we used to call it Nasty Brothers. But you couldn't get a loan outside of that. They called it redlining. She said, but there's only one thing. They don't let women buy commercial property. Only men. Like one minute I'm living in a neighborhood where I know everybody and everybody knows me in the next minute. It's a very loving community. Like my parents have been in their house 70 years. I mean, where are you going to buy crackling from? Everybody's like, oh yeah, you just got to go to the promenade. It was, it was black people everywhere. Everything was here. I mean, everything. Welcome to Shelf Life, a podcast that uses community stories to amplify, preserve, and learn from the voices, experiences, and histories of Seattle's Central District neighborhood, also known as the CD. I'm Myla. I'm Jill. And I'm Dominique. We're three people who didn't grow up in the CD talking to folks who did. Many of the people we interviewed described the Central District as the neighborhood where all the people of color lived. This is where African Americans, Filipinos, Japanese, and others raised their families and made a living. But in this episode, we ask, where did people live before they came to Seattle? Why did they come here? And did the city even welcome them? One common thread in everyone's stories is that people often came here to leave injustice behind, whether they were moving their families out of the Jim Crow South, starting over after Japanese internment, or putting their lives back together after World War II. Today, those same families that worked so hard to get here and worked so hard to build a community are being displaced, which is why it's so important for us to learn all that we can about why people came to the CD and what they experienced when they arrived. Today's episode is about migration and arrival. Uh, My name is Hayward Evans. And I was born in 1952 here in Seattle, Washington. It was my mother, my uncle, and they moved here in 1946 from uh, Kentucky and from um, Junction City, Kansas. Central area came into being because of, uh, they called him Big Bill Gross, William Gross. William Gross owned one of the hotels downtown. He's a black guy, haircuts, restaurant the whole nine yards, where there was a black influx of workers because they were living in Roslyn, doing coal mining. Uh, A lot of black folks started moving downtown. Well, people downtown got a little upset. So old man Yesler talked to William Gross, who was the leading businessman at the time in the African-American community, and he uh, basically gave or sold very cheaply all the property around 23rd and Madison, that whole area. And so he asked the blacks to move there. This is when you would look at First Hill and it was all trees. <laughs> so they sort of moved us to the outskirts, if you will, the outskirts of what they considered the city, which is old Seattle downtown. And that's why the black people ended up congregating there. And then in order for you to get a loan, there were certain requirements, i.e., I will not loan you money to buy, even though you might qualify, I will not loan you money to buy a house over in this area. You want to buy a house? Well, yeah, here's your catchment area. And back then, the Prince Hall Masons were very, very powerful here in the, in the, uh, in the central area. Because of the, the Masons, they had internal lending within that organization. And they had a couple of little clubhouses. They had their own little nightclubs. 
and at these nightclubs and gambling establishments they had lending opportunities. So everything was really uh, forced upon them to work together as a community and a collective. But Prince Hall Masons were extremely, extremely powerful. Hayward really sets the stage for this episode with that story. So many black families moved here during and after World War II because things were not getting any easier in the South, because there were jobs here, and because the military brought them here. But when people got here and started looking for a place to live, they realized that Seattle also had, and still has, a long way to go in overcoming discrimination and injustice. Well, my name is Leslie uh, Webb Womack. I was born in Seattle, Washington. Um, my paternal grandmother came here to, and she worked in the uh, naval shipyards, which was common. There were jobs. We would go to Arkansas, where my great-grandma was. We would go on the train in the summertime, which is really common in families. You go back down south for the summer, and you meet your cousins and all of that. And I can remember we would be dressed up to go on the train. I remember having white gloves on and pat mother's shoes, and I remember having our own food, like in a shoebox of cookies and fried chicken and... But you would get to a certain point in the South, you would change cars. You know, my grandma would get us all up. And I remember it being hot, and the seats were no longer, like, facing forward, bench seating. And there were people standing, and it was really crowded. And I remember thinking, why would you move us here? And she would just say, you know, just be quiet. You know, we're not going to be on here long. And never really never really addressed it, you know, until years and years after. You know, even when I was down south, we would, you know, go to the movies with my cousins and we would be walking on the outside going up to the top, which I thought was just exciting because here I was never allowed to go into the balcony in a movie. My mother was like, you're not going up there. And it was because there was a time where that was the only place you could go. Whereas I saw it as, you just don't want me to go t into the balcony. And so it took a while to get that lesson. But it, it kind of um, spurred another situation with my mother and my daughter. I remember one day she goes, Lizzie's having a, a birthday party at the tennis club, at the Seattle Tennis Club. And my mom said, hmm, like that. It's... <laughs> <laughs> I knew exactly what she was thinking. She used to babysit a family that she would have to take the little girl down to the tennis club, and the little girl went in the front door, and she would have to go to the back door. But here my daughter is seven, eight, and all excited with not having that knowledge and wondering, why aren't you as excited as I am? And so it leads to opportunities to share those stories, to say, you know, they didn't always let black people come to the tennis club. And it's kind of like she was more excited about Lizzie's party than the fact that it was a place that at one time her, grand her grandmother could not go. Uh, my name is Lottie Cross, and I was born in Oak Ridge, Louisiana. Uh, I'm the eighth child of 12 kids. My mother and father were sharecroppers down in Louisiana. I stayed there until um, I finished high school, and then I didn't want to pick cotton and do all that stuff anymore. So I got us one semester scholarship to Grambling University. 
my mother, she loved my boyfriend because we, we were high school sweethearts. Lottie, you need to go and marry him. He's a good boy, she said. And I'm thinking, I don't know about that. He moved to Seattle, and so I told him whenever you get a job, and I placed to stay because I wouldn't stay with in-laws, I would come. I just was trying to get rid of him. And seven months later, he called me. He had a job. I took the train. I had never been out of the South at all. I came to Seattle December of 63, uh, December the 7th, and uh, we got married December the 16th. <laughs> and when I got here, it was a real culture shock. <laughs> I wasn't used to being around white people. People didn't speak. You know, down in the South, we speak to everybody, just speak. And I'm thinking, these people don't speak to people. Well, black people always speak, so it wasn't no problem with them in the Central District. It was the working area in the downtown areas. And actually, where I lived over in, uh, I live on the border of Leisha and Mount Baker. White people, they didn't like the idea that we moved there, first of all. Some of them didn't. We had a real problem with two ladies, uh, and they just, they, they, didn't, they didn't want no parts of us. But when you come up like I did, you know how to face things and get around the bad situations. I remember a plantation that we stayed on. It was the last day of school. We were all dressed to go to school. This man, he comes up. He said, they can't go to school until they pick that cotton. I'm thinking, we got this the last day of school. We going to school today. My, we call my mother Anna. Anna said, Lottie, they're going to move us out of this old raggedy house if you, if you don't go out there and pick the cotton. If y'all go out there and pick the cotton, you might can get an hour or two of school in. I was, I guess I was, I can't remember nobody else being so pissed as I was, you know. We missed the last day of school. But you know what, I can, we know how to survive. What a powerful story and a great example of what people left behind, but also what people brought with them when they came here, like knowing how to survive. Speaking of survival, after World War II ended, Japanese American families were finally freed from the internment camps, ending what was one of the most discriminatory periods in this nation's history. Many of those families returned to Seattle. John Yasutaki's family came to the Central District. Born originally in Chicago, my mom and dad got to know from from camp, we call it camp, but that was the internment camps during World War II. And that's how my parents got to Chicago. They're originally from, my mom from California, my dad from Washington State, and they ended up in Chicago. They were interned at Tule Lake, which is one of the high-risk camps. In other words, the, the camp where they considered folks to be most un-American or had questions. My parents decided they wanted to move back home where their parents are. I remember distinctly, 1957-58, we took a combination of flying and train. That's all I can tell you is how we got to the West Coast. All I know is I got air sick. And so anyway, we, we came here, and um, my dad wasn't sufficiently situated to buy a home at that time. We shared residence in a duplex with uh, my auntie, Tomo, my dad's uh, second oldest sister, attended schools at what was then Coleman Elementary, then Washington Junior High, then Garfield. In our neighborhood, there were several Japanese families. I remember Clifford Takuda, 
and he became a state legislator. His dad was George Takuti. He had a drugstore, and that was in the central area. The, but the predominant number of families were African-American. Uh, the majority of the kids that I went to school with were African-American. Very diverse community. You had uh, Jewish enclaves. You had Asian enclaves. You had African-American enclaves. Very few Latinos, but they were still evident. You had Native Americans, too, American Indians. I grew up with several families, uh, the Shop Bells, uh, uh, Peter Johnny and his family, Oh, gosh, uh, Leighton Dupree and his family. Uh, so I, I grew up with a number of Native American because we're all living in the central area. That's pretty much where we had to live. Annie Harper's family ended up in the CD, too. Her dad was an African-American soldier married to a Japanese woman he met in the war. So Annie experienced her family's arrival in Seattle through multiple lenses. My name is Annie Harper, and I was born in Yokohama, Japan. My mother was a war bride, and so we came to Seattle, and my mother got a cab and told the guy that she wanted to be in the Asian part of town. So the first place he took us was the Bush Hotel. And so my mother gets out, and she's in her tweed suit and her alligator purse and her alligator pumps, you know, and her gloves. And she sees all that, those men in, hanging around, so she comes back. She tells him, this is no good, you know. So he says, well... There's another hotel, a smaller hotel around the corner. And she went inside to look. And so she says, okay. The sign on the hotel said NP Hotel. I thought NP stood for Negro people. <laughs> Isn't that hilarious? But um, so we ended up living in High Point in West Seattle. And my mother got a job working in the sewing factory because she never worked before but she was an excellent seamstress and was down here on Rainier. So she worked there, caught the bus home until my dad came here and found a job. Then we made too much money to live in the projects. So they started looking for a home. Um, my folks bought a house on 32nd at Dosey Terrace. I made them buy that house because I wanted to go to a school that had some black people. So it was either Garfield or Franklin. So we were five blocks from Franklin, so I was happy about that. <laughs> so many people we interview talk about entire extended families moving to Seattle. One family member would come first, maybe with the military or for uh, wartime jobs, building ships or planes, and then they'd pave the way for more family to follow. My name is Alice Yvonne Lowry Thomas. I was born July 4th, 1931. I was born in Kansas City, Missouri. It was General Hospital Number 2. Now you have to understand that General Hospital Number 2 means that was for black patients and Number 1 was for white patients. I grew up in Kansas City. However, when my mother was pregnant with the next child, she asked, I'm told, uh, my uncle and his wife, Lydia, asked if they could keep me until my mother was better. And 17 years later was how long we, I lived with them. We were not rich people. My uncle was a hardworking man. I remember uh, every Friday night, he would bring the Kansas City Call which was a black and is a black newspaper in Kansas City. On Friday night, we would sit down and 
Uh, he would read. He was a third. He had a third grade education, but he knew how to read. So we would have that, and we would have a Pepsi. That was our Friday night ritual. So I had a very full life until I believe it was March 1948 when my aunt passed away, and my parents said I was to come and live with them. I think my mother realized that I was a very sad little girl. And she wrote to her sister who lived out here in Seattle and asked, could I come out here and go to college? They arranged it and I got myself on the train and came out to Seattle. And my aunt told me when I got here, she said, you can go sit anywhere you want. And I remember that there was a little restaurant on 3rd and Union across from the post office. And I stood and looked and stood and looked and thought, I'm not sure I'm going to go in there. But finally, I got myself together and just took, opened the door and went in and sat down. My name is Narvella Jackson. I was born in Okmulgee, Oklahoma. We lived on a farm, and there were nine children, and my parents decided they didn't want their children to become farmers because it was a hard life and not very lucrative. We had a few relatives out here, and we came up here in a two-ton truck, the whole family. They found a realtor. They wanted them to buy a house down on Madrona Beach, but of course course that would have taken too much of my mother's money because she was the budget queen. So that's how we ended up on 25th, 215 25th Avenue. My dad was fortunate enough to get a job here with the city of Seattle. He worked for the street department. They would wash the streets down, and then he promoted from there to the um, auto section of the city until he injured his back, and he never worked again. They denied his claim with the city. So he he never got disability from them. So my mother managed to get a job as a housekeeper in some of the hotels downtown, the older ones. I mean, she was, let's face it, she was tired. My name is Enye Wakoma. I was born in Seattle, Washington, University Hospital. First of all, my family's from Arkansas. And they worked on a farm. They worked a farm. Uh, it wasn't their farm. So obviously they were most likely sharecropping. So, you know, folks were looking for something else, obviously. My aunt was the first to settle in Seattle. And my grandfather um, followed after he was discharged from the military after World War II. So I would say by the mid-50s, early 60s, uh, most 
of them had arrived and settled in Seattle. So my grandfather uh, purchased his first home uh, in the Central District, obviously, because it's the only place you could buy homes if you're black. And he bought his house from Thomas and Elizabeth Grace on 24th and East Marion Street. Over the next couple of decades, there were several homes that were purchased by family members, uh, many of them in very close proximity to one another. Those family homes were always anchor places and places where family you know, really congregated uh, in large numbers, consistently. On any given day, you know, I could be walking through the community and see, you know, four or five re relatives just randomly. We didn't start, I, I don't remember us having really intentional, like, family gatherings until in the later years when it became clear that we were, like, losing touch with one another. And then we were like, oh, we need to intentionally start to do things to, to hold it together. Before that, every Sunday, my mom Bertie's house was full. And we didn't, like I said, we didn't really start having family reunions. There was no need to have a family reunion. Family gathered naturally. These stories are painting a picture of a neighborhood made up of people who had already faced plenty of hardship before they got here. Maybe that's one of the reasons why people worked so hard to build community once they arrived. Harriet Walden is someone who experienced that sense of community when she arrived in the 70s. My name is uh, Harriet Walden, Harriet G. Walden. I uh, was born in Jacksonville, Florida. I was raised in segregation uh, called uh, Goldsboro, and it was an all-black township that was uh, annexed into uh, Sanford, Florida, against its own will, uh, left Florida. And I met my husband in Santa Barbara, my former husband. We came here in 1975 to open up a photography studio. And, and so my former husband came first, uh, and then I came with four children uh, on the bus, on the Greyhound bus, and uh, 1975, and as the Greyhound bus was turning that corner on I-5, uh, my second oldest son, uh, Chikundi Salisbury, said, Mama, 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 they got the lights on in the city to welcome us, because he had never seen a city before. It was a motel out there on uh, Aurora, and we stayed there. And then the next day, I caught the bus downtown, because I didn't know anybody, and I'm adventurous, and I took all my children downtown, and we was in Woodworth. And one of my children was coughing, and this lady says, oh, what are you doing, this baby out, what are you doing out here, you know, with the baby? And I said, well, I just moved to Seattle, and we don't have a place to stay yet. And she says, oh, it's a place next door to me. She was just an African-American uh, who was nosy, and that's a good characteristic sometimes. Mm -hmm. It was a, a house that was owned by Dr. Uh, Harris. Uh, he was a dentist, and he had a house, and we moved into a basement apartment. And since he recognized that we still had our furniture was still in storage, he gave us two months' rent so we could get our furniture out of storage. 1976, I think it was, that we opened up our photography studio. We were right there. At first, we were called Salisbury uh, Beaver Photography. Uh, Mr. Beaver, who owned the facts at that time, when he um, gave us the money to open up our studio. And the next year, he came as a good man, Mr. Beaver was. He came back and he said, um, take my name off of the business and just let it be Salisbury Photography. And that's what we did. He said, you have too many children to ever worry about paying me back. A great man, one of the finest that I ever met living in Seattle was Mr. Beaver. Yeah, he gave us our start in Seattle.
people who were already in the Central District helped Miss Harriet and her family with housing and with starting their business. And decades later, Miss Harriet is still giving back to the community. It's a great example of why it's important to understand now the stories of the families who built the Central District then. Yesterday's community builders paved the way for today's community leaders, and that has implications for the whole city, especially when that community is now being displaced. Our last story is about a person who kind of came here by accident, but who loved it so much he stayed. Leon Carter was stationed at Fort Lewis, but it was his 21st birthday that converted him into a lifelong Seattleite. So I heard about Seattle when I was 17 years old. I didn't get here until I was 20 and uh, celebrated my ber- 21st birthday uh, right here in the central area, right about 25th and Alder, about two blocks from where I live right now at a speakeasy. I was determined to get fallen down drunk that night, and I did. I went to the Blue Post Tavern, which is where the Shell Station is at on Madison and 18th right now. There used to be the Blue Post Tavern. I remember, oh, the Black and Tan. I stopped at the Black and Tan many times that night. I did have dinner. I ate at Jimmy's Cafe that night. You know what Jimmy is? Jimmy's Cafe on 19th, which is a Mexican restaurant. It used to be Jimmy. Jimmy Sumner's place. And I also remember going that night, <laughs> well, that was an adventurous night because I, uh, my best friend or friend that I would always come to see, his name is Leon Ward. Uh, he was a thug, you know, a real thug. His friend uh, also was named Leon, so we had the three Leons going for us. People liked to shoot at him. And that night, the first time I ever got shot at was standing alongside of him. We were at Max Island. And uh, we, we, he and I were coming out the club. He's holding me up. And we hit pow, 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 pow. It was kind of funny at the time. To me, it was funny. Probably what stood out in my mind about my birthday, now that you, you brought that out, the first time I ever got shot at. So yeah, it was a memorable night. And I guess it was the beauty of the city. But that night, I met some people, and it just all seemed to fit. Went to the Post the next morning and changed my home of record from... Chicago to Seattle. It's 51 years ago. You can follow Shelf Life on Twitter at Shelf Life Story, on Instagram at Shelf underscore Life underscore Stories, and on Facebook at Shelf Life Community Story Booth. Engage with us and let us know what you thought of the episode by using hashtag Shelf Life Pod. You can listen to all of our published community stories online at ShelfLifeStories.com. Shelf Life is a community story project that is recording and sharing oral history interviews with people who have roots in Seattle's Central District neighborhood. We are artists, filmmakers, historians, entrepreneurs, librarians, activists, and neighbors. Our goal is to amplify, preserve, and learn from the voices, experiences, and histories of Central District communities. We hope these stories can contribute historical context to the conversations that shape the way we think about change, community, displacement, and growth in Seattle and in cities around the country. Shelf Life, the podcast, was recorded, edited, and produced by Jill Friedberg, Maya Ina, and Dominique Meeks in Seattle, Washington. Original score by Bubba Jones. Special thanks to King County for Culture for the grant that makes this podcast possible. 
The stories featured in the podcast were recorded in 2016 and 2017 by Jill Friedberg, Mayala Ina, Dominique Meeks, Henry Luke, Chieko Phillips, Leilani Lewis, Rachel Kessler, Sarah Post, and Lulu Miles. Thank you for listening. <laughs>